are the Ad Watchers? We are attorneys at the National Advertising Division of BBB National Programs, a team with 50 years of experience investigating and resolving disputes over the truthfulness and accuracy of national advertising campaigns. To make sure advertisers can back up what they are telling consumers, we don't just take ads at face value, we put them to the test. Why? Because advertising law is simple. It's the execution that's hard. Welcome back to another episode of Ad Watchers, NAD's podcast that gives a view into how our organization reviews claims and applies advertising law. If you missed any of our previous episodes, don't forget to check them out later. They're available wherever you're listening to this. My co-host today is NAD Assistant Director Annie Ugerlion. Hey Annie, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about how to present evidence at NAD. What is the starting point? how to make sure that your evidence is the right fit for the claims, and also if you're critiquing the evidence, how to point out the flaws in a way that is understandable. So for this episode, we have a guest speaker, Tom Rossholt. He is the owner and principal of Tom Rossholt Consulting, Inc. Tom is a data scientist and independent consultant who helps clients tell the truth in their advertising. Over the course of the last 15 years, he has had a hand in substantiating hundreds of advertising claims presently or formerly in market. His professional activities include regular and in-depth involvement in NAD proceedings as an expert, helping non-technical audiences understand technical topics, including statistics. So this is a perennial issue at NAD. We are not scientists. Uh, we We are attorneys. And we get called on to weigh scientific evidence when determining whether or not a claim is substantiated. We've talked about some of the issues relating to claim substantiation in other episodes, but today we wanted to cover some of the common issues we see when having to assess scientific evidence and hopefully give practitioners some tips as far as what to expect when making your case at NAD. So whether we have a lot of evidence submitted, a little bit of evidence submitted, or no evidence submitted, what's the starting point, Annie? The starting point, as always, is the claim. We look to see if there are express or implied claims. So if we're looking at an express claim, what kind of a claim is it? Is it a performance claim? Is it a quantified performance claim? You know, for example, two times faster or or five times stronger. The stronger the claim, the stronger the support that you need to support it. It's very important that the testing be conducted under consumer-relevant conditions using accepted methodologies, and it has to relate directly to the claim. So, for example, let's say you're making a two times faster claim. If it's only 1.8 times faster and you're using, let's say, for a cleaning product an irrelevant test soil, well, that's not going to be sufficient. And another thing to consider is whether you are making an establishment claim, for example, a clinically proven claim. Those claims are held to a higher standard of proof. And I'm not going to go into the that because we, we covered that in a prior episode, but there's a hierarchy, basically, of evidence. So from human clinical studies at the top, trickling all the way down to animal studies. Remember that advertisers are also responsible for any reasonably implied claims. So we had a case 
where we were dealing with non-toxic claims for a cleaning product. And we found that the support provided, although it was robust, was simply not sufficient to support the broad implied claim that consumers would not experience any foreseeable harm when they used the product in the wrong way. So very often when we're dealing with product testing, there may be a relevant industry standard, a standard that's been formulated by experts in that industry category. But there are a few rules when trying to substantiate your claim based on an industry standard. We are not bound by the industry standard at NAD, but they are very instructive often. We look to a few things. Is the standard current? Can it be modified somewhat? It is sometimes permissible under certain circumstances to deviate from an industry standard. For instance, if the standard has not been updated to adapt to new technology. And sometimes you can deviate from an industry standard if your product testing is a better mimic of real-world conditions. So testing your product under the conditions that consumers actually use the product. And we always look when we're looking at an industry standard, we're still looking to see whether or not the testing is consumer relevant. For instance, if you have a washing, a dishwashing product, and you're testing the strength of the wash, and it's being run, the industry standard calls on you to use a cycle that isn't often used by consumers in the real world. That uh, will count against the reliability and usefulness of the industry standard. And as with all testing, we look to whether the results are statistically significant or consumer meaningful. And we're going to talk more about those ideas later with our guest. So when there's not an industry standard to test a product, we sometimes and often get proprietary testing. Companies who come up with their own forms of testing to substantiate the claim. Again, we're looking to whether or not that testing is reliable results are statistically significant and consumer meaningful. Sometimes the proprietary test is more consumer relevant than the industry standard test that may be applicable. It may account for new technology. It may account for how consumers actually use the product. For example, let's say you had a vacuum cleaner. What kinds of surfaces is the product being run on in the test? And is the vacuum cleaner being used in a way that consumers actually use it. For example, is the bag full or half full or not full at all? Switching gears a little bit to a more general notion about scientific evidence that we receive at NAD, typically we want to see complete studies rather than abstracts or summaries. This is for several reasons. We want to primarily get a look at the methodology that was used to make sure that it's going to produce reliable results. It's also important to remember that the advertiser can submit a study on a confidential basis to NAD and provide a robust, hopefully a robust, summary to the challenger. So it's very important for for the advertiser to understand that we can certainly have all the information and will be very mindful about what to include in the decision. But it's really important for us to be able to review it in its entirety to determine if there are any flaws, understand the testing conditions. And if we don't get the full study, it's important to note that we will accord lesser weight uh, to the study. So 
be mindful of that when making the consideration to give us less than than the full study. For example, you may see something in the full study that indicates that the testing wasn't under consumer relevant conditions. There may be some indication there that it was the product was tested under optimal conditions that don't exist in the real world or don't exist very often in the real world. So what happens when there is a, a tricky complex scientific issue that we're asked to deal with at NAD and have to assess. We often have the benefit of expert testimony and expert opinion. Yeah, so what we call that basically the battle of the experts, uh, or battle royale, if you will. So we will get expert reports from both sides. And it's important to note that expert reports are particularly useful when the state of the science is emerging, right? Or, Or there's no clear standard. So it's not enough to just present the expert report. Please note that in the hierarchy of scientific evidence, it provides useful background information, but it's not a substitute for competent and reliable scientific evidence if that is what is needed. Sometimes we will get an expert report and it simply does not cite to any studies or any kind of articles to support any assertions that are made, and that's just not sufficient. It's not sufficient to say that you are an expert in this area and that your opinion will suffice. We need to be able to review relevant studies and articles to determine if your position, in fact, is persuasive. And similarly, we will rely on an expert from the opposing side to see if that opinion is, in fact, is flawed. So very important to cite to relevant studies and, and articles. You know, in one case, we were reviewing neurofeedback claims, and the advertiser's own statistical expert report was very useful to show that observational studies, like the ones that the advertiser was relying upon, actually had very limited relevance as to how other populations would respond to the same treatment. So that's right. Not all expert opinions are equal. One of the parts of our approach is that we give an expert opinion less weight or no weight when it is contrary to scientific consensus. In other words, the less an expert opinion looks like an outlier, the more favorable it will be received at NAD. Speaking of experts, let's switch gears and introduce our guest today, Tom Rossold. Welcome, Tom. Hi, Eric. Annie, happy to be here. First, let's start. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? I typically get called the numbers guy or some version of that everywhere I have gone since I was a little kid. So I've never strayed very far from the path. Uh, Education, career, accolades, they've all tended to revolve around math and quantitative reasoning. Specifically, I've spent the last 15 years working in the ad claim space. So when are you brought in on a case, Tom? When And what is your role? The way I describe claim substantiation to my clients who have varying degrees of sophistication or naivete on the issue is that claim substantiation is the task of forging a connection between a message, which contains the claim, and a metric which is derived from the data. Uh, You can think of it as building a bridge between the message and the measure. And sometimes that bridge is a rickety rope bridge like you might see in an Indiana Jones movie, and sometimes it's the Golden Gate Bridge. 
you folks rarely see the Golden Gate Bridge. Most of them are like a highway overpass, and that's typically sufficient. The majority of my work involves collaborating with clients to bring the message and the metric together before the claim makes it to market. However, that is not always the case. So in the case of an ad claim dispute, where a claim is already in market, I have one of two roles. If I'm supporting the advertiser, I use statistics to demonstrate that there is a reasonable interpretation of the data that dovetails nicely with the claim. If I'm supporting the challenger, I use statistics to highlight the greatest weakness or weaknesses in the interpretation of the data chosen by the advertiser. So you could argue that I, even though I'm hired by one side, I don't take sides. I extol virtues on one side and I point out uh, deficiencies on the other side. So there are a lot of phrases that get thrown around when we're, when we're talking about scientific evidence. And if you could put into your words, what do we mean when we talk about getting statistically significant results? I love this question, especially from a lawyer, because the answer is super easy. And everybody will recognize this expression because they've watched TV if they're not a lawyer. Statistical significance is the scientific equivalent of the legal standard beyond a reasonable doubt. Any courtroom drama you've ever seen, they talk about that you need to have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. You don't actually need to get hung up on statistical significance other than it represents a result that is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a great answer because uh, that shows how we translate things into legal from scientific speak into legal speak, which is some of what we're trying to do here. In the same vein, can you talk to us about the concept of results being consumer meaningful? Statisticians get hung up on statistical significance, but we do so within the context of what is also practically significant. So we talk about statistical significance, which is a numerical, scientific, statistical construct. And we talk about practical significance, which is essentially, in the vernacular, who cares? We want to make sure that someone cares. The classic, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Practical significance is, yes, the tree fell. Yes, it made a sound. Yes, someone was there to hear it. What's one of the things that you wish lay people understood about scientific evidence? That is the world's biggest softball to a statistician, Annie, because just about every statistician I know will give you the same answer to this. And I've spoken about this publicly, and I've written about it, as have many others. And here it is. An experimental result, for example, the mean of 50 data points, is only an approximation of the truth not the absolute truth. And we run into this all the time when I'm speaking with clients, uh, marketers and R&D people, and me in the middle of those two groups, typically with a lawyer, one or more lawyers. They look at a number on a page and they talk about it as if that's actually the truth. And what our exercise should be is how far are we from the truth? And we can actually use statistics to approximate how far we are from the truth. And it has to do with all those things that create noise in the data set, natural variation, randomness, sampling, error, bias, all those other things. And we need to make sure that we never, ever forget 
that an experimental result is probably, for lack of a better way to say it, wrong. And I can give you a convenient example if you'd like one. Yes. Please do. <laughs> Flip a coin 10 times. We know that the odds of getting heads is 50%. Half the time you get heads. So when you run an experiment, which is flipping a coin 10 times, you expect to get five heads. What if you get six heads? Are you going to go on the internet, go on Twitter and say, hey, everybody, the probability of flipping a quarter is 60% and getting a head is 60%. You're not going to say that. The challenge, however, is that we don't know that 50%. We don't know the so-called truth before we run the experiment. So that's why we need statistics to tell us how far we are from the truth. And it seems to be a mysterious black box that allows us to do this. The reason we can do it is significantly, haha, significantly beyond the scope of our conversation here today. So I will just ask as an expert that you trust us. So at NAD, when we get a test report or results of a study and, and we look at it and, you know, there are some things that can jump out to us as being problems, for instance, when you see that the subject population is clearly different from the target of the advertising. For instance, these are the kinds of things that jump out to us when we look at something and assessing whether or not it's reliable. What are some red flags that you might see that we don't see, that we may not see? There are many, but I'll give you my top two. First of all, I touched on it in my previous answer. If a report fails to properly account for uncertainty, imprecision, randomness, variation, acknowledging that a experimental result is not the so-called truth, that is a huge red flag. The cases that I've been involved in that have been the easiest are where that, from a statistical standpoint, are where the opposing side has failed in that regard. The other red flag is failing to acknowledge, explain, or account for bias. So let me explain bias to you in layman's or lawman's terms. Bias is anything that pushes our measurement away from the truth, takes it further from the truth. And you alluded to, one of you alluded to this already, uh, the people that you, let's say it's a consumer study, and the measurement you're taking is from a group of consumers that don't represent the target population. That's an example of bias. So failing to acknowledge, explain, or account for bias. And those are the only three things you can do with it. You can call it out, you can smear it out, or you can take it out and... This is bias I'm talking about. And you need to describe what steps you took. So let's suppose that there is some sort of bias, like a lack of real-worldness. You might overcome that by saying, yeah, I know that we're talking about people cleaning their shower, but all the companies involved in these ASTM standards have agreed that it's okay to use instruments in this case. So we know that the lab test represents bias relative to the real-world setting, but we're okay with that. But at least acknowledge it. So those are the two red flags. Account for uncertainty and precision and express how bias was uh, handled. Can you provide some do's and don'ts for folks who are in-house or outside counsel? I'm an optimist, Andy, so I'm just going to stick with do's. And I'll phrase all my don'ts in the, in the converse so they come out as do's. First of all, and you've both expressed this well this morning, 
but it's worth emphasizing and repeating. Take a skeptic's point of view. It's a, to use another legal metaphor, unsubstantiated until supported is rough equivalent of innocent until proven guilty. So assume that things aren't what are asserted until you see support for them. And I have seen NAD is uniformly accomplished at that. I can't say the same is true for the parties going into the claims. A lot of times it's driven by their degree of experience in this space. So that's one do is be a skeptic. Another do is, I've touched on these already, but it's worth repeating. Look for some accommodation of uncertainty and variation. Talk about the distribution, the margin of error, confidence intervals, significance testing, what I did about bias. I used a randomization. There's got to be, it should be a detailed express, not at all vague list of those things. And speaking of lists, you also want to see a list of assumptions and a rationale for their research choice. I touched on that before as well. Why did we do a lab test instead of a a consumer test? Why did we put up with a sample that came from a company that provides people for tests rather than actually going and talking to what we used to do in the old days, random digit dialing on telephones and things like that? So, you know, open yourself up so that everybody sees everything that you did. And if your choices are good, they will stand. And if your choices are poor, then you're in trouble. But trying to hide what you did or avoid saying what you did is going to come back. And I think you touched on this, Annie. You can't get away with it because both sides are hiring people that are scrutinizing all these materials. And it's going to be pretty obvious if something is missing, misconstrued, lacking, expressed poorly, those kinds of things. What do you do in the case of a close call? I don't have to worry about close calls. I simply express what is revealed by the statistical analysis. And then NAD uses that in their constellation or their dossier of items that they consider when making their final decision. It sounds like I have an easy job. I always do the same thing and I leave other people to the hard part. <laughs> it's partly true. Right. That I hate to say, I, the phrase is overused. It is what it is. The <laughs> right. statistics are what they are. And there's no amount of wishing or hoping or optimism that changes any of those things. So, Tom, how do you vary your approach depending on the product that's, uh, that's involved? I don't. Statistics is statistics. The math is the math. This is the beauty for a guy like me of dealing with something where there is some degree of objectivity in what one does. Sure, there's some nuance, there's some art to it, but generally speaking, SIG testing is SIG testing, and 95% confidence is 95% confidence. And I listen to the data, and I use the tools that are accepted for the type of data that we have. Thank you for joining us today, Tom. That was fascinating. It's very helpful. Happy to be here again. So let's talk about some tips and takeaways from today's episode. First, make sure your testing matches the claims. Make sure that the testing is reliable and consumer relevant and elicits statistically significant and consumer meaningful results. If you're relying on expert reports, understand that those alone do not suffice to provide a reasonable basis and that the reports need to provide supporting evidence for any conclusions. It's very important to bring your statistician or expert into the fold from the get-go so you can make sure that 
you have the necessary information you need to make the right kinds of claims. One of the things Tom mentioned was that it's important to be a skeptic. It's important to assume that the claim is not supported un unless and until there is evidence to the contrary. So, And that evidence, as we've talked about throughout the episode, has to be reliable. And speaking of which, that has to take into account variability and bias. Make sure that the evidence that you provide and the explanation about the results is as specific as possible. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of The Ad Watchers. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Join us next month for another episode of The Ad Watchers. As always, head over to our website, bbbprograms.org, to learn more about what we do at the National Advertising Division or any of our self-regulatory programs. That's all for this episode. See you next time.